Welcome to the Principles of Performance podcast, where we discuss how to optimize your health, fitness, and performance. Drawing on decades of experience of working as coaches, consultants, and trainers to top performers, athletes, and teens from professional sports to top universities to the U.S. military, Eric Degatti and Mike Perry discuss topics and strategies of how to perform at your highest level and be your very best. Join us and our friends and colleagues who are leaders in the fitness and performance industry as we investigate and challenge the most popular training, nutrition, lifestyle, and recovery protocols. And away we go. Here we are, episode number 15 of the Principles of Performance podcast. I am your host, Eric Degatti, along with my co-host, Mr. Michael Perry. And how are you today, Mike? Living the dream, buddy. How are you? Absolutely great. And uh, we are continuing our good luck streak of awesome guests here. And today, Mike, I am not going to have the coolest accent on here with my New Jersey accent. We have a friend of ours, Greg Dia, uh, who's a registered international sports physical therapist, as well as an international instructor in diagnosing movement dysfunction. Uh, he has over 20 years in competing in track, sprinting, Australian football, soccer, golf, basketball, cricket, swimming, cycling, and road running. Um, and he also has over 20 years of working in sport in uh, professional football and rugby teams, uh, Institute of Sport in Australia and China with netball, rugby league, football, swimming, hockey, gymnastics, martial arts, just about every sport you can imagine here. Uh, and World Cup winning women's volleyball. And he's the head of medical services for the Frankston Football Club uh, coming to us uh, on the next day. So this is awesome. We were able to coordinate the, uh, the timing on this. Greg Dia, welcome. Thank you very much, Eric, and good to see both of you. Uh, it's been my pleasure to be here. That's some yes. introduction. I guess it's uh, if somebody is pushed or pulled or crawled or pressed or jumped or you know run backwards or somersaulted, then I've probably watched them and tried to help them in some way. It's been a it's been a journey, as they say. Absolutely, you have to explain some of those sports to us in the U.S. Here. Um, well, but, how long? Uh, have you been? Yeah. <laughs> All right. We got a while, but we got a lot of stuff to cover. So Mike, right, I'll let so, you kick things off. So Greg, you've got a wide range of experiences professionally, both on the rehab and on the performance side. Tell us a little bit about your background and how you've been able to bridge the gap between those two worlds. Well, that's a good question. Um, you know that so many of us are what I would call purveyors of potential or purveyors of possibility, meaning we sell to other people about the potential that they've got in them. And we sell to them, hey, you've got possibilities in you. And our industry is full of purveyors of possibility, but I was really interested in what I would call the manifestors of possibility. Those people who proved that they could do something that stands out. And that's been something that was naturally of interest before I could even articulate what it was. And I think in the still moments where you're on a train somewhere or you're in an airport somewhere or you manage to steal some minutes and you're reflecting, it bubbled to the surface that there are people around the world that do outstanding things. And it was something that I pursued trying to learn about. People like uh, Mark Verstegen and Mike Boyle, you know, to name a couple of people, uh, people like John Terrine, who 
was one of the pioneers of NFL strength and conditioning and then incorporating movement. And one of the things that I wanted to do was to look at what, what are the uh, missions or the value statements or the principles um, because many of them have got some of the same practices, but what are those things that they're talking about that allow them to demonstrate that they can cause a change? Because we're really in this industry to cause a change. When we all enter this industry, whether it's clinical or performance, at somewhere inside of us, we said, I want to make a difference to somebody's life and maybe to more people's lives. And maybe that ripple is going to be really, really large. Uh, for example, when we won the World Cup in, in China, you know, the ripple across a billion people was was enormous but that's nowhere near as important as the person in front of you whose life you just changed in that moment and so I wanted to see what are the indicators of being able to change things um, so that I could raise my hand and say you know what I hold myself accountable to making this change and that's why I entered this industry and so I was sitting on a train from China to uh, from the the west of China to the east it was about a six-hour bullet train and I pulled out a mind map software and I started scribbling about, you know, what are the values of, of uh, functional movement systems and Mike Boyle and Mark Verstegen and, and John Terrine and what are some of the values within the military systems? And I started to rearrange them and move them and many of them aligned. And I started to see that there are people around the world who haven't met each other, who uh, espouse the same principles and values and if you line them all up, they might look like different words, but in fact, they're the same things. And I started to see that every person around the world who's able to change behavior and to change performance does so by addressing four barriers to performance. And some people are outstanding in one of those barriers or, or changing that barrier to performance. And others are outstanding across all four. And I think what even was notable is that those individuals who had demonstrated success not necessarily in business, but success in changing the behaviors of their individuals, in building world champion athletes or maintaining world champion athletes. Those who were successful knew what they were good in, which barrier to performance they were really good at, but they were also not very good at knowing what they weren't so good at and who they could tap into to help them achieve that athlete on their journey. And so that understanding of what, manifestors of potential were doing across the world, even though not all of them knew what it was, led me to, I guess, travel so many parts around the world. I've been to over 30 countries and I've lived in five and I've taught in 10. And we see these things pop up again, that great people that make a difference can actually address any one of these four barriers of performance. And I was, uh, I guess, lucky enough, but you create your own luck to some extent to, to develop skill sets in, in all four of those areas uh, and and to know where my limits were. And, and, and so bridging the gap, to come back to your original question, really is about saying, well, the person in front of me today is asking for my help to change something and I've got to figure out what's the thing that's holding them back. Um, and you and I both know, we all know that removing the negative is the first thing to help you move forward. And sometimes that negative is going to be in one bucket. It's, it might be in all four. And it's about where do we start? And so bridging that gap is, is really knowing, um, being humble enough to evaluate somebody and say, what's the thing that's holding them back? Because that allows you to step from where you are to where you want to go to. And that's really the bridge. 
All right. So I'm totally bought in already. So now before we go even go to our next question, I, I got, we got to get the macro view of what your definition of these four barriers are. So, so expound on that if you would. Okay. They are, they're all related to energy and energy. I use the word energy because it relates to work. You energy is the ability to do work and work is, um, you know, force times distance and directions and all those kind of relevant aspects. Um, so energy is an overarching word. Now, if you have um, bad energy in your body, you it's usually represented by examples such as pain, toxins, inflammation, poisons, um, and it may be of the body and it may be of the mind and we could argue whether the two are separate or not. It doesn't really matter. But bad energy is one. And so if somebody's not feeling well and they're not, particularly healthy, then you've got to do something about that because it's a barrier to performance. So uh, bad energy is one of them. Uh, blocked energy is another, and it relates to the ability to express mobility, to get from point A to point B in a movement pattern. Um, and if you can't get into position, for example, if you're deadlifting and you don't have enough mobility to get into a hip hinge, that's a blockage of your ability to do work. And so if you remove that blockage, you just remove one of the barriers to performance. So We've got bad energy and we've got blocked energy. The third one is uh, leaked energy, and that relates to motor control, um, that you put effort in in a particular direction, but for some reason you're collapsing uh, in another direction. So if you're talking sagittal plane and somebody collapses in the frontal plane or transverse plane, then effectively that's wasted energy. Um, you think about track sprinting, for example. You know, some degree of rotation is inevitable in the early acceleration phase, but in top end speed, it needs to be predominantly sagittal or linear force production. And if you're crossing the midline, then that's really, you have to uncross every step. And every time you cross and uncross, that's wasted energy that could be used going forward. So leaked energy is that third barrier. And then the fourth one is deficient energy. I mean, if you're not fit enough and not fast enough, that matters as well. And what we know is that your measurements in performance really are often perceived to be related to your deficiencies in energy, that you're not strong enough or you're not powerful enough. But we all know that you could have plenty of that, but for some reason there's a leakage or there's a blockage or you're just not well. And those four barriers have been condensed into three in the functional movement systems in terms of health and function and performance. So health is the opposite of bad energy. It's good energy. And function is that combination of uh, the opposite of blocked and leaked energy. So the opposite of blocked is unblocked or mobile. And the opposite of leaked is controlled, which is motor control. And then opposite of deficient is abundant. So we're really trying to understand somebody's um, reasons for not having robust function. There's a, we, have, we kind of have this two, two worlds, which is people who talk about function, people who talk about robustness. And I don't think they're separate because if we look at the definition of robustness, the Oxford English Dictionary says there's the ability to withstand or overcome adverse conditions so withstand first and then overcome and about 2011 i went to holland to do an sfma level two course with kyle kiesel and gray cook and i remember we were sitting around there and gray was saying that coming up in the next six months at the 2012 nsca conference the theme was functional training and he said if you look at the agenda we don't have a definition of functional training uh, we don't have a definition of function. And so if we're going to describe what functional training is without a definition of function, then we're going to have a lot of disagreement. And then as, as an industry, we need to do better. 
And so we went around the room and people volunteered suggestions about what function was defined as. And it was interesting because nobody wanted to repeat the definition that the previous person said. So you had a room full of people saying different things and nobody was wrong, but it was a classic example of a room full of experts who couldn't agree on what function was. And so over the next 12 hours or so, we kind of penned a definition, a working definition, which is that function is the ability to respond and then adapt to internal and external stimuli. And it's got two elements there is that respond first and then adapt. And the stimulus could be external or internal. And the thing about our movement evaluations is that they tell us whether somebody's not responding or adapting. But when we do something to it, we see the response happen straight away. And we don't have to wait six weeks for adaptation to occur. So if we think about function being the ability to respond and then adapt to internal and external stimuli, it's really similar to robust, which is the ability to withstand and then overcome adverse conditions. And those adverse conditions could be internal or external. So everybody wants a robust and functioning athlete or a robust and functioning mom or weekend warrior. And there are four things that are stopping. Well, if there's three things, it's ill health, ill function and ill performance. But within that function, it's blocked energy or bad end or yeah. leaked energy that are limiting somebody's ability to be functional. So across the world, I looked at who was doing great things and I thought there are some outstanding people who can turn deficiencies in energy into abundance of energy through the strength and conditioning paradigm. And there's outstanding medical professionals who can help somebody turn them from being bad energy to good energy, from being ill health to good health. Uh, that's where the science of acute medical care is so important. And obviously there's the, been that gap in the middle of we don't just medically evaluate somebody and then strength test them. You know, you, we think that if you've got a blockage in energy or a leakage in energy, then that's going to impair your ability to express the deficient, the abundance of energy that you've got. So that's a long-winded way to say the four buckets relate to um, bad energy, blocked energy, leaked energy, and deficient energy. And if you have the opposite of that, you have good energy, mobile energy, flowing energy, and abundant energy. And where your athlete sits on that continuum dictates the starting point for you. But the paradigm says that you probably should be healthy first, mobile second, have some control of that mobility, and then get after it. And in and, and you know, Gray. And Lee and Kyle and Greg and Phil Plisky, they condensed it from four, I'm saying there's four, to three, which is health function performance, into two, which is move well first and then move often. And so move well covers that first three and then move often covers the last part. Uh, so we got it down to two. I think I look at four um, and, I, and I've often thought, I wonder if there's five or there's six. And when <laughs> I... I guess over 12 or 13 years, I've kept looking for that extra piece that's missing. And uh, it it seems to always fit within four. Um, and we can, you know, for, for discussion purposes, knock it down to three and knock it down to two. But you've got to know where your skill set is and who who can help you knock out the other one or two or three or four. So there you go, Eric. I love it. And it's a very, it's a, a great, elegant way of kind of getting things very easily understood for the, for the end user. And so uh, let's, let's keep focusing on that, that functional and the movement part, because that's kind of how this conversation kind of fell together uh, in, in the last week or so was that uh, the uh, functional movement systems had recently 
posted an article that I wrote a bunch of years ago, and it was in response to a research paper where they just took uh, people's FMS scores and they implemented relatively generic for lack of a better term, core exercises uh, with these people to see if it would impact their movement scores. And so uh, within that article, one of the things we talked about was the the change of changing someone's score to what we, we would consider acceptable with, for those not familiar with the FMS system, which, which is on a zero to three scale, which is generally we're teaching that if you get to people who two, that's what we're looking for because we don't have a ton of robust data that shows you you're going to have a significant improvement in performance or reduction in injury risk once you go beyond that point, even though we do have a score of a three. And Greg responded to the article and, and, and wrote to me and said, well, you know, there actually is a paper that shows some improvements in performance uh, with higher movement scores. But, you know, that's tough to stand on the, on, the, on the soapbox and sell that. But I said, you know what, let's come on and let's throw it out there and let's kick that around. So, can we confidently say that moving, having higher movement quality is going to improve your performance? Well, I think there's two parts to that question. Can we confidently say that if you improve somebody from a two to a three, that it changes their performance? Um, we don't know. Can we confidently say that higher movement scores relate to higher performance? The answer is yes. In one pretty good study, it was a prospective study about uh, elite track and field athletes out of the United States track and field team. So you were only placed into this study if you were in the top 10 athletes in the world, which typically made you probably the top three in the United States. So this is the best of the best, the real pointy end. And in this particular study, they did a, a movement screen on all of the athletes at the beginning of a, or at the end of a season, for example. But they already knew what was your personal record in your event, whether it be throwing or jumping or running short or running long or whatever it may be, um, they already knew what that personal best was. And so they took a movement screen at that point in time and then just left them alone. And then in 12 months time came back and had a look at the uh, personal best for that ensuing 12 month period. And then they just scrubbed the data and said, well, what washes out? And because there's lots of variations as to what causes a change in performance. But one of the things that showed up is that if you moved not so well in a squat. So if you had a score of one, which we would say is below a minimum level of acceptable, and you compared that to a score of a three, which we would say is pretty great, you know, really optimal, then those individuals with a score of one had a uh, an average deficit of about a half to one and a half percent reduction in their personal best. And those with a score of three had probably a half to one and a half percent improvement in their personal best. And that, if you're if you're eighth in the world, that could that improvement could shift you up to a medal winning position. If you're third in the world and you don't squat particularly well according to those criteria, then you may go from you know a medal winning position back into a tailing off position. And the other thing that I found interesting about that is that if you saw somebody with a, a squat deficit at the beginning of the season, and they were interested in pursuit events like track or throwing, uh, you could almost say, unfortunately, the next 12 months of your life is going to be wasted because you're not likely to perform very well because the data says that you're just not going to do so well. That's a lot of wasted time, unfortunately. And I think it it's really worth having a look at whether that actually makes a difference to other populations, not just elite athletes. But the other interesting thing is that that said that if you had an asymmetry in the movement screen, you also had a reduction in your performance over 12 months. And there was one other one, which was a score of under 14, a collaborative score of 
um, which is which indicates that somewhere in there there's got to be a movement that hurts or that is um, below minimum acceptable quality. Now remember hurt, that's your bad energy. And below acceptable quality, that's either blocked energy or leaked energy. It's not, and it's related to the fourth one, which is do you have an abundance of energy as measured by your performance on the track or on the field? So that I think we can confidently say that in that population of elite pointy end world championship athletes, moving well, has a relationship to the to the result that you're going to get from the 12 months of work that you're going to put in. In terms of whether there is scientific data in other populations, I haven't seen it. Okay. And that's so that's just that's just honest. But I can tell you that anecdotally, we absolutely think that when you improve movement quality, you can change performance. And that comes down to the fact that I don't want somebody to trust me when I say that. I want them to test me about it. And the way that we test it is that we measure somebody's performance and we do something to change their movement quality and then we measure their performance again. And what we see is a response. The nervous system responds and they demonstrate a measurable change. And that's called a performance improvement. And the only thing you've done is changed a movement behavior. And I see, I've seen that so many times and I could give you examples. And one of the, way, one of the important things is it tends to show up more in activities that are very pursuit like so a race against the clock whether that's swimming or cycling or running uh, i've seen individuals who will come in and bring their their road bike in or their triathlon bike and you know they they've already had it fitted and i run an acute eye over the measurements and we make subtle adjustments to it but and sometimes we then put them back on the bike in the short term and we ask them to spin at a particular rpm or a particular heart rate and their data shows up as a 20-watt improvement, and that's in the space of small adjustments to the bike position. On other occasions, we make changes to the way that the body is behaving on top of the bike, and then we measure that. And we see 20 watts improvements per unit of RPM or per heart rate based on the fact that we change something within the body. Now, 20 watts is really difficult to get if you train hard. It takes a number of weeks if not months to get that 21 improvement. And so you can see that in clinic or in gym in a matter of minutes based on what you do to change movement behavior. One of my athletes then came back to me a little later and she said, hey, I did a 90 minute ride and my average was 20 watts better across the entire 90 minutes. And that equates to time in pursuit events like cycling. I had an athlete who was a... Uh, world championship qualified triathlete and he switched his hand to ocean swimming and he had a um, a training session the next day and i said to him you know there is some biomechanics data that says if you want to improve your speed in the pool by 10 percent, you can do it in two ways you can reduce your drag by three percent or you can increase your power by 30 percent and increasing power by 30 percent in a world championship qualified athlete is, is impossible is it or reducing drag by three percent well that relates to your position in the water so i do a treatment session based on an evaluation we demonstrate that a change in his body has occurred because we can qualitatively categorize his movement as being improved and he goes off to train and the next day i drive into the gym and he's walking out and he pulls me over and he shows me the data from his um from his 
watch that he swam with. And he said, yesterday I did a five kilometer or a three mile ocean swim. And I swam at 81 seconds per 100 meters. And I said, okay, that's great, I guess, is it? And he said, well, normally I swim at 90 seconds per 100 meters. I said, okay, well, let me do the maths on that. That's a nine second reduction compared to 90 seconds. That's 10%. So in one session, he's dropped 10% of his speed. It was increased 10% of his speed. And he said, and I felt easier. So the only thing we did was change movement quality and we saw a measurement change in his performance. But I think this happens in pursuit events uh, like cycling and swimming and running where you change movement quality. And there is a reason for it. And we can talk about that a little later. But I think I can, I feel confident, not because I believe it, but because I've seen it. It's a great line from A Few Good Men with Tom Cruise where he, he plays Lieutenant Daniel Cathy and he says, it doesn't matter what I believe, it matters what I can prove. And even Greg Cook says, I don't want you to trust me, I want you to test me. And so I feel confident because I've seen these things occur over and over again. And we have one research study in the, the most elite of athletes in the United States that says, yeah, they're related. So for me, I feel comfortable and confident to be able to say that. I, I share your confidence and I'm sure Mike, you do as well. Cause we, we see it every day with the people we work with. And, and I don't know if you, you would concur in that the, the biggest feedback that I get uh, kind of speak to what your point just was with the swimmer is that the biggest change that the athletes will subjectively tell me is, is an, an increase in efficiency. Everything feels smoother and easier. Right. And I see it because I work a lot with American football and, and baseball uh, and with baseball that it's just my swing feels easier, but I'm getting more velocity off the bat. I'm getting more velocity on my throw, yet I it, it's loose and easy. Right. I'm getting to balls easier. So that efficiency, I think, is key. Now, in our course, it, we have kind of our own buckets. We talk about in terms of movement and saying we, we kind of qualified it. say there's there's movement competency, which kind of speaks to your block, your blockage of, of mobility and the freedom of movement. Then we say there's movement capacity, which is kind of your third bucket. And then they say there's actual movement skill, like just because I have a 21 in my movement score doesn't mean I'm going to go win the masters because I can go swing a golf club. I actually have to learn the skill of swinging a golf club. Um, so take kind of taking that uh, to the flip side to say, okay, well, where do we make the mistake, which we often do of making assumptions based on a, a confined movement screen. That's really just looking at movement competency at its core with the FMS, or even when people look at static postural screenings and they try to extrapolate a bunch of things that they think are going to happen on a bike or in the water or on the field, which is, is making a big leap sometimes. I think the best way to not make mistakes by extrapolating assumptions for performance is to have a baseline test battery that tells you whether you're heading in the right direction, you know, based on that definition of function and robustness being your ability to respond first. So if you've got that test and retest uh, culture, then you're going to make mistakes, but you are correcting them really quickly. I mean, we all make mistakes, don't we? But it's the ability to spot them before they turn into an adaptation. And it also comes down to when I you know, travel on the high-speed train from China and I'm watching the world go by and my mind is getting creative. I think about all the different systems that have been put in place. Um, and in, ex in the Exos training systems, they look at, uh, you know, parts, positions and power. But really, we've, we've probably got... Uh, it's not parts, positions and power, it's parts, patterns, or positions, patterns and power. I'm sorry. 
but we've really got two extra P's and it, the fifth P is precision. And so you could have healthy parts that can get into those start and end positions and they can express a pattern between the start and the end position. I'm talking golf swing or anything else. And they'll have the power of that pattern, but the precision is lacking. And so a movement screen or a static postural screen tells us something about some of those P's, the positions and the patterns. It doesn't tell us about power. It doesn't tell us about parts. We need another system to evaluate those parts. And it doesn't tell us about precision. That's really done on the golf course or it's done on the practice field. Um, and so these, we cannot make a mistake by simply saying, hey, these are designed to tell us something about a particular part, but they're not designed to tell us everything. You know, I don't, I don't judge my dishwasher on its ability to vacuum the floors. It does its job really, really well, but I'm going to need something else that does the floors. Uh, and so this is a system of interactive batteries and tests. And if you've got a retest and a, a test and retest culture, then you know the limits of the, the screen, whether it's a static postural screen or a dynamic movement screen, you know the limits of it and then you add to it. You know, every standard operating procedure is not set in stone. It's allowed to be adjusted so you can add bits that suit your context. It's easy to make mistakes if you're not testing and looking for them. And I think if you keep looking for them, you'll find them because we all make them, but you can adjust really quickly. And that's that's really what this game is about when you want to take somebody forward is make adjustments really quickly. As Gray says, fail fast with feedback. Yeah, yeah. Well, there you go. He says a better, you know, he's he's really good at condensing details into single, single line quips. Absolutely. So we're going to change gears a little bit. Um, so, you know, in the last few years, we've seen this a little bit more, but uh, so what do you, what do you say to the segment of our industry that say, none of this stuff matters. Like movement doesn't matter. We can deadlift with rounded spines, uh, movement screening doesn't really matter. And quality shouldn't really change the way that we program. What, what is your thoughts about that? Well, I think that's two, there's two things to think about here. Firstly, they're right. Uh, movement quality shouldn't change our programming approach under two circumstances. The first circumstance is if, you, if an individual has high blood pressure and tachycardia, then movement quality doesn't change our programming approach, right? Our programming approach then is to get that person medically evaluated right away. So we put things in context and the people that have got these concepts, these thoughts about movement quality doesn't matter. They're right when it, may, when it comes to that first example. They're also right when it comes to something called a discrete task. And in the size of movement skills, Discrete tasks are those that have a defined beginning and an end. Uh, an example might be flicking on a light switch or bench press or deadlift or swinging a golf club. They have a discrete start and they have a discrete end. And in these types of movement skills, then these are delivered by pre-planned movements in parts of our brain known as central pattern generators. And these central pattern generators or these pre-planned movements they actually don't involve any feedback about movement errors. They're not reliant on proprioception or information coming back from the periphery. Um, they're simply designed to begin and end. And if you have poor proprioception and you have poor movement quality, you can still express the movement from its beginning to its end. 
What's interesting though, is that such movements, these discrete movements, they're actually very, very, very low frequency movements in sport and they rarely contribute to success because on the flip side, we have slower movements that are more continuous, like in power events like strongman, where the lifting of a load is typically a little slower. Then as the, the weight moves, you're going to have to pay attention to the path. And that's not the case with a, a power event, like a strong bench press or a fast bench press, or even a throw. Where it also makes a difference is that in the long term, poor movement quality that is hidden in a discrete task where it doesn't matter, it does matter over the long term because poor movement quality contributes to shearing forces in a joint and shearing forces lead to wear and tear and wear and tear leads to your nervous system effectively not giving you permission to express power. So it shows up later. It doesn't show up in the short term. So on that front, those critics of movement quality are correct. It doesn't matter for discrete tasks. It does matter for continuous tasks like running or swimming or um, cycling. It also matters for um, combinations of a discrete task. So if you flick a light switch and then you walk to close the door, you've got two discrete tasks on the bookend, but in the middle you have a transition zone, which is based on you having feedback about the information in your environment. And if you trip over the pot plant, well, that's because you didn't pay attention to your environment. And so movement quality is that middle zone. It's the transition between discrete tasks. So in NFL, we've got discrete tasks of, of a jump. You know, it's got a discrete start and finish or, or a throw or a, uh, even a tackle for some discrete, for some reasons. But it's the transitions between them. These are continuous and they're actually reliant on information from our environment, whether that's internal or external. And movement quality evaluations tell us about the state of that environment. And that's not my opinion. It's like I was saying before, I don't want you to trust me on that. I want you to test me on it. Because let me show you what a movement quality screen does as it relates to those continuous elements or the transitions between discrete. Secondly, so I said they're right on two occasions. One is movement quality doesn't matter if you've got elevated blood pressure and tachycardia or some other bad energy problem because it won't change your programming because if you're a good coach, you're not going to program for lifting. You're going to send them off to a medical professional. The second one was that it, it, it doesn't matter when it comes to discrete tasks. And I, hopefully I explained that it matters when it comes to continuous tasks or it matters in discrete tasks later down the track. Um, I think there was a third one and I forgot what it was. Uh, oh, that's right. So in, in the pointy end of powerlifting, a rounded spine probably helps you lift better because of the length tension relationship of your extensor mechanism of the spine. And there's a couple of people who have got more experience in this field than I. Stuart McGill is one and Andrew Locke is another. And their theory is that having a slightly rounded spine during a powerlifting deadlift contributes to an enhanced force producing ability. Here's the kicker. Having a round spine is okay if it doesn't get any further more round during the movement. Because there's very clear evidence that says if you start in a position and the load pulls you into flexion, that's a very, very high risk of getting a spinal injury. But if you start in a slightly rounded position and you stay there, 
that's significantly safer and it might actually enhance your force production. So I don't think we sit on polar opposites, those people who talk about movement quality not mattering. I think we have context-related agreement that, yeah, it matters for discrete tasks. It probably matters at the pointy end of powerlifting. Um, sorry, it doesn't matter. It definitely matters for continuous tasks where feedback is important. And, and it definitely matters. Movement quality doesn't matter when your health is at risk. It's like programming doesn't matter. So I don't think we sit on a divide. I think we sit on a wagon wheel where the central hub is whether this thing matters and we all stand on different points and we can look down the radius of spokes and look at that hub and say, well, from my point of view, this is how I see it. What matters is that we could experience all the different points of view and say, oh yeah, I can see it from your point of view. So they're right on some occasions and they're wrong on some of the occasions. And it's the ability to learn. I think if you stop learning, then you, you're probably not growing as a coach or a clinician and when we all entered this profession, we probably put our hand up and said, you know, I don't want to let my ego get in the way of being a good servant of my client. And as soon as you close your mind to the possibility, then you've done that. You've unfortunately probably can't hold yourself accountable to that, uh, that mantra. So well, I, oh, go, ahead, go ahead, Mike. No, I was just going to say, so this kind of uh, reminded me of a couple of things. So, you know, first of all, you know, we have to think about who we're training because when we have, when a lot of people have this argument about, you know, deadlifting with a rounded spine, and, and I agree with everything you just said, but the question is, is, uh, you know, do clients, I mean, do strength coaches, personal trainers, and even clinicians, do they have the skill set to evaluate an individual to put them in a position to say, hey, this is safe and this is unsafe? And that takes a very, very keen eye. So, what I don't want people to do is just start saying, well, you know, they just said they could start, you know, as long as they lock their rounded back into one position, they're going to be good. So I think people need to understand that is a high skill to create intra-abdominal pressure, to have really quality movement, but also being able to maintain that same spinal curve for the duration of whatever lift that you're doing. That takes a lot of skill and a lot of practice. And people don't talk about that aspect. They don't talk about how long it will take to get into those position shapes and postures to lift safely. People just think, well, it's it's not dangerous. Um, and we have to look at the skill, right? Um, and that's a big part of it. And the skill takes time and the adaptation takes time. But I think like anything, context is everything. And that's where people miss. Yeah. And also how strong is strong enough? I mean, there are people that work in powerlifting who train for powerlifting where there's probably no limit to how strong is strong enough because that's the game they're in. But for those of us who deal with individuals who, who play, who don't necessarily just lift, and whether that's athletic pursuits or uh, games, then there's probably a ceiling as to how, how high a deadlift should probably get before you need to be moving away from chasing that number to applying it to this pursuit. And we know that deadlift relates to top end speed. Um, and it's probably in the vicinity of 2.25 to 2.5 times your body weight. So lifting above that probably doesn't correlate more to your top end speed. But here's the other thing. Top end speed matters not particularly much in most sporting endeavors. It's the acceleration that matters. Your ability to get through a hole or to get away from trouble, that's acceleration. And by the time you've, you've got out of your acceleration, you're usually doing something with the ball. Um, 
and you've passed it off or you've or you've laid a tackle and you really hit, hit top end speed. So chasing 2.2 to 2.5 times your body weight and and as as you said, Mark, saying, well, if I'm going to get 2.25 to 2.5 times my body weight, I'm going to round my spine because Greg said it's okay to do it. And so did Stu McGill. And you go, that's not the point. The point <laughs> is that you've got to be in the game so that you can apply the skill. And not being in the game means it doesn't matter how good your player you are. You, you're no good to anybody if you're injured on the bench. And if you're not putting the work in and having somebody who's got a keen eye to keep you safe, then the rounded spine concept is moot because you end up being injured. And I agree with you. There's a time and there's a place and there's a limit to how much you chase those numbers because at the end, at the end of the day, you've got to apply that. And I don't think any football manager, if we're going to talk football or volleyball coach, I don't think they really care about your deadlifting. I think they care about you winning a championship. And that's got to do with so many elements. And if you're a strength and conditioning coach and you're spending time on slow powerlifting, chasing three times body weight, I mean, you're stealing from the coach's time to spend time practicing to win that championship. So context matters 100%. There's a safety rule here. In the movement science, which I've dived deep in for so long, it says that we pay attention to something called a performance bandwidth. And a performance bandwidth is the criteria that I and Eric and Mike and all of our colleagues that we know and all the people we don't know should be applying when we look at somebody move. We What we're feel effectively saying is that there's three things we pay attention to. Is the movement successful? Okay, let's take a Turkish get up, for example. Did the person roll and press and stand up with the bell overhead and then lay back down again? That's just a very broad definition of did they do it? Yeah, they did. It's successful. Was it efficient? Mm, okay, well, that's a little challenging because we could argue lots of different criteria about it's the efficiency. Yeah, they got there, but gee, it was ugly and they wasted a lot of energy, okay? Was it safe? Well, I see, I see a lot of risk factors in the way that they're doing that that potentially show that they're likely to get hurt. So you might say that they're successful, but they're not efficient and they're not safe. That's the skill of a professional to say, Let's keep chasing success, but let's just tighten up that efficiency for the purposes of being able to do more, which helps you, and also staying safe so you can do more, so you can stay successful. So you're right, the trained eye and the keen eye of a movement professional, it matters when it comes to safety first, efficiency second, and success third. Success is where the money is. Uh, efficiency is where the time and the resources and the energy gets wasted. And safety is where you cost a lot of money for somebody not being able to do what they're paid to do. They all matter. And the keen eye and the skill to get these things correct, it costs people money when you don't get it right. Here's a great saying. It takes 20 years to build an athlete. It takes 20 years to build a reputation. And it takes 20 years to build a, an income. It takes a moment to ruin all of that. It could be your reputation or the client's reputation. And so that means it's our responsibility to make as few mistakes as possible, or if we make them, learn fast with feedback. Um, so that that skill set, Mark, is 100% correct. And we have to remove ego and say, we can always be better at it. And we should seek out the assistance of people who are better than us. You know, the, the expression I always say is, we, and, and this speaks to the context of taking that that zoom out and say, well, before we can really argue about the deadlift and what's the what's the absolute proper way to do that, 
is the question is why are we even doing a deadlift in the first place? And the, the, my question is, are you doing, and it, does your question revolve around doing this to get better at the deadlift? Or are you doing this to just to get better? And there's a difference between the two. I can implement a deadlift with someone where I'm never going to approach that rounded spine approach because to your point, there's they're never going to need to get to that level. Um, and it's also relative to the audience that you work with. So, you know, as an example, you know, from some of the people I've learned with, um, I, you know, if you look at what Louis Simmons will tell you versus what I learned from Paul Check, Paul Check works with you know, people who are really injured. So if they round their spine in the least, it's going to be a significant issue. Whereas Louis Simmons is dealing with, with these absolute mammoths that you couldn't put a bullet through their ligamentous system of their spine. So they're going to get away with a lot more. And they have, to Mike's point, a lot more skill than we do, or you're the, the 14 year old freshman football player that I have in a, in a high school weight room. So yeah. uh, there's, there's that absolute context to it as well. Yeah. So to wrap up that, you know, great question is those people that say the movement quality doesn't matter they're right under some circumstances, but when they're wrong, it's, it's potentially catastrophic. And it's about knowing when to be, when to be less wrong um, and when to set aside your belief and your, your position on the wagon wheel and take up a different position and say, okay, I've got a different person in front of me today and movement quality potentially matters because this person is involved in continuous activities and not strongman or uh, powerlifting. So I, I always look at it this way and in a world of social media and, and you know, people just trolling to, to get likes, et cetera. Here, here's how I kind of determine if I agree with someone or not, um, you know, especially in the clinical world, would I pay that individual to work with my wife or my son? And if the answer is no, then I, I just, I can't agree with what they're saying because, you know, when, when you put it in a real life scenario, not on just social media and Instagram and whatever, um, I think you have to say to yourself, would I pay money? So one of my loved ones could either get trained or treated by that individual. And I think people need to think about that. Yeah. And social media shows us how many people are purveyors of possibility, how many people are on their selling that they see the potential in you. And if you just come to me, then I will be able to change that. Well, you can get that sale based on how flashy you are, but I'm interested in the manifestors of possibility. Those people who, have a record of being able to show that they can actually get a result. I remember Greg Rose once sat me down. We were teaching in Asia together and he said, how many world champions have you created? No, no. How many world champions have you trained? And uh, the number was, it was a double digit number. Um, it was potentially over the 20 mark or so. And he said, okay, how many world champions have you created? And I said, well, that's a better question. And the answer is none. <laughs> uh, and and just this morning, I was thinking, I'm not in the world championship athlete creating business. And I respect those people who do because, man, they've got some skin in the game. But I'm in the world championship athlete maintaining business. And it's, it's equally important. And the pressure is really, 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 really high because if you don't maintain that person, you're out. Uh, you cannot keep somebody on the field to do what they're great at, then they're going to look for somebody else who is. And equally, kudos to that person who's built multiple world championships over 12 or 13 years. I mean, Gray's, Greg's talking about, you know, your Rory McElroy's and your Jordan Spieth's that he's worked with since they were, you know, 10 or 11 years of age. 
you know, through to them being world number one by the time they're 23 or 24. And there's not that many people doing it, but there's a lot more people who are operating in the world of maintaining and, and getting some marginal gains and bumping people and putting them back on track. And those are the people that we're talking to most of the time. And also those are the people who deserve respect because they've got skin in the game at being able to manifest the potential of that athlete. Those Everybody can say, hey, I can make you better. I mean, that's what social media is full of. <laughs> so my filter is not that you say you're great or not that you look you're great. My filter is you, you're going to humbly and probably not even say so have an, a background of individuals that you've worked with who have gone from zero to hero or have been halfway to hero and you've helped them get the last part and you've kept them there. That's my filter for social media because we can all say that we're great, but it, what matters is what we can prove. Absolutely. There's, there's, there's an absolute part of the uh, population that, that kind of fell backwards into a position or, or had the right connections to get into a position and um, just did a, a, you know, a, a, a enough of a job of babysitting as to, to steal a Kelly, Kelly Sturette line, babysitting mutants that um, basically yeah. then, tr you know, they ended up winning by no fault of your own. Um, you just happen to be lucky enough to have the polo shirt on the sideline. Yeah, but here's the other thing is that you can still blunt a sharp sword. I mean, we've got sh these mutants that you're talking about. They're really sharp swords, but we've got to keep them sharp, you know, keep the pointy end pointed. And it's pretty easy to blunt them and ruin them. So, you know, you can you can be lucky enough to fall in, into a group of talented mutants, but you can, you still got to keep them talented and you still got to let them be mutants. It's that same concept of your 200-meter track runner who's got an, an asymmetry in their active straight leg race. I mean, if that asymmetry contributes to them being the best athlete in the world around 200 meters, just leave them alone. Keep them sharp at being slightly asymmetrical. Um, and, and you can be lucky enough to fall into those circumstances. And I count myself as lucky, but you know what? You create your own luck because you keep your eyes open and you look for those opportunities. Absolutely. So let me ask you this. Uh, is there a time when movement quality really doesn't matter? And um, are there any types of minimums you need to see from your patients or athletes um, where you're no longer concerning with movement quality be, being the limiting factor? Yeah, when you, um, well, we spoke about where movement quality doesn't matter so much earlier in, yeah. in respect to discrete tasks or whether somebody's got a health issue. Um, the other time that movement quality doesn't matter is when you have to run away from a saber-toothed tiger or when you have to quickly scamper across the road because of that 18-wheeler that's just about to mow you down. I mean, to hell with movement quality. Just survive. <laughs> so, the, so movement quality doesn't matter in the clutch moments of life where it's get the job done and to hell with movement quality because the priority is not efficiency and safety. Well, maybe it is safety, but the priority is success. And maybe success is defined by not dying or <laughs> maybe success is defined by there is zero time on the clock and I run terribly, but I have to run terribly 
in the fastest possible way to get across that end zone touchdown zone and it doesn't matter what my movement quality likes and it even doesn't matter if I do a hamstring on the way I have to get there and so I think when survival matters to hell with movement quality but here's the interesting thing there are potential signatures of failure and there are potential signatures of success and if you're in a position to carry that ball across the end zone then you've already overcome all the possible things that would cause you to fail. And right now, it's just sign your name towards that successful trophy. And I think in those circumstances, pay no attention to the possible things that might lead you to have poor movement quality. Just get the job done. So that's when it matters. And when it's game day, it's work on your strengths. When it's not game day, work on your weaknesses. So I think it's really easy to, to drop our own egos as movement professionals and say, movement quality doesn't matter today. Just win the effing game, you know? Because um, that keeps all of us in a job and it keeps, it doesn't just do that. It creates community and it makes the world a better place in that community. And, and that's, that's so valuable. And movement quality takes a back seat when it comes to that on those occasions. But when you're away from the gym, work on your weekly weaknesses so you can still be there when it matters to actually apply that winning move yeah and, uh, that is the very very powerful stuff and, and i hope everybody's kind of making note of that because um you know the, the way i explain it when when someone comes into me for an evaluation is that i need you to communicate and and not be a hero now don't be a, a, a tough guy now be the hero when you when you're in that situation that you're talking about greg and if you come to me if you say to me now oh you know my hip doesn't feel right we want to figure that out right now if you say to me um you know in the in the fourth quarter of your championship game you know my hip doesn't feel right i'm gonna say you know what? let's talk about it tomorrow <laughs> right let's get this thing done right now so uh, i think that's incredibly important so we have you know, certain go ahead greg before we quickly wrap up on that, the last time I was in a room with Mike was around, I don't know, five or six years ago, maybe five years ago, we were in Oceanside, California, and we were chatting away at a speaker school for instructors. And I can recall a couple of our Canadian colleagues were there and they were saying that some of the feedback that came from fitness professionals in Canada who had taken a movement screening course, some of the feedback was, Four individuals sent a message through and said, hey, I applied a movement screen this past week. And our clients mentioned that their ankle hurt, just like you were saying, Eric, hey, my hip hurts. Well, we better go and look at that. And so they said, hey, my ankle hurts. And they said, because of the, the fact that they had been trained up in a system that said, if you have pain when you move your own body, the best thing to do is not to stretch it out or strengthen it. The best thing to do is to find out why that person's got pain. Four individuals in Canada gave some feedback in a period of three or four weeks that said that individual with ankle pain on a movement screen ended up going for evaluation and was found to have had a bone cancer. There was a cluster were four individuals with a bone cancer that was related to the reason that they had ankle pain. And 
And so that is the kind of thing that you don't assume is going to happen. And the best way to not assume is to, to use some kind of system that protects you against your own subjectiveness. I don't believe that it's possible. Well, use a system that protects you. And sometimes you'll be right and sometimes you'll be wrong. And when you're wrong, you know, it's going to matter to somebody. That's incredibly important. And I, I think that um, that's some of the misinterpretations that we get when we do movement screening is the public, you know, concept sometimes is that we just do movement screens to keep ourselves busy so we can prescribe a bunch of corrective exercises. And that is, couldn't be further from why we do this than, than the truth. It's, it's really just to filter out, is there anything here that I need to be concerned with before we move on to the next bucket, before we move on to the next barrier and see, is this even a barrier? That's really it. So it's not so much that, hey, I'm looking for, for work here as a corrective exercise specialist, because Mike and I have done entire you know shows talking about how we even hate the term of corrective exercise. So uh, I, I know we're getting towards the end here, but I got to get your slant on that of corrective exercise. And if we could ban the term, are you in? There's two things. <laughs> Charlie Weingroff said it well, and he said he doesn't like the term either. And I think what he was saying is that there's just an entry point the exercise that you do is based on the entry point that you see for that person that's going to take them forward. And we use movement screens that tell us what the entry point is going to be. That's part one. The second part is that corrective exercise doesn't make any sense if you don't have a test and retest. If you haven't done a baseline test on somebody such that when you apply an entry point exercise, it, you can't prove that it changes then you can't say that it corrected course. I mean, corrective exercise happens when you turn the steering wheel. You're on a particular course, you turn it and it corrects you back to where you need to go. If you've got a destination and you've got a feedback system, everything that you do is corrective as long as it keeps you going in the right direction. Sure, let's ban the, let's ban the phrase and let's just call it entry points. You know, I'm, I'm turning left when I should be going straight ahead. Well, the very next thing that I do, the entry point for intervention, is to turn back to the opposite direction. And we could say, yeah, you're, you're correcting course. So I understand the corrective exercise paradigm and it's purely because you could spend hours and countless months doing corrective exercise and never change anything. And you've got to know when to get away from corrective exercise and when to get after abundant energy training and, and, and skill acquisition. So I agree, it's got a bad name if you spend too much time doing it. If you don't spend enough time doing it, it's got a, I don't know what the phrase is, but it's the balance, isn't it? It's do, it's do too much or do too little. It's the Goldilocks principle. That's what it is. Do just enough and prove that it's making a difference to take you in the right direction. Awesome. Mike, any final thoughts before we start wrapping things up? No, I just, uh, I love the way that you, uh, you know, dig deep into these topics. And, um, you know, I think we all agree on the, the, the approach here and the principles behind this, but I just love the way that you dissect it a little bit. And uh, no, I'm, I'm sitting here writing a bunch of notes and I can't wait to go back and look at these notes again. And, and uh, thank you so much for sharing your knowledge. Um, it's always great to catch up with you. And Eric, uh, I'll let you finish us up. Awesome. So, well, before we go, I want to know uh, about some of the stuff that you're working on now, Greg, like what's some of the new and exciting projects in, in Greg Diaz's world in the, in the coming months and uh, beyond. Now, that's a great question. Um, I recently put out a course on 
mobility and stability for performance as it relates to those two middle sections in the four barriers, which is blocked and leaked energy. And I dive deep into the the how we apply the art behind the coaching science because there's a lot of coaching science. And so I, I've released that and that's being taught to a bunch of fitness instructors who work in the aviation industry for the aviation firefighters around Australia. And so that's been a project that's just come to completion and is now being rolled out. Um, the second one is related to the football team that I recently joined when the pandemic hit and the offers from international organizations ceased. I couldn't travel for professional sports consulting. I just reached out to a local semi-professional team and asked if they needed some help. And they, they said yes. And I volunteered my time and I'm into my third season now. And we've slowly been looking at putting out spot fires, but now we've put out a lot of the spot fires. It's about backburning and, and preventing a lot of these things from happening, but also monitoring how well we go about doing that. And some of the data that we've got so far says that for an elite program on the smell of an oily rag, when it comes to resources, we're punching well above our weight when it comes to um, things that I think matter, which is the health of our players. And one of those is that we have a very low percentage of soft tissue injuries. We have a low number of injuries per 1,000 hours compared to the, the more elite programs of the Australian Football League. And here's where it gets interesting. In the last two seasons from the data that we've been recording, we have a 0% recurrence rate for soft tissue injuries in the same season. And I've not seen that anywhere in the world. And we're doing that on the grounds of a principle-based system, which is look for the red flags that are going to stop somebody from being able to get on the training pitch and address those. And if that's all we can do, um, I think the ripple effect is really great. So the next project is really to say, we've already seen this across two seasons. Can we demonstrate it for a third season? Because then I think it's probably not luck or coincidence. I think it's probably systematic. And can we now translate that into players being able to not just move better and be healthier, but also have better performances. And we've got enough players sticking around on our roster from last season to see if we can now measure their performance using me metrics that matter and then see if we can change those in the off-season and the pre-season. So, you know, it's just honing our craft. That's the next project. Um, and doing that with the people that trust me with their time. And I think we do that from day to day, whether it's elite level or mums and dads or grandfathers or kids. It's just honour the fact that somebody asked for our help and smile and say, how can I help you? And while I'm with you, my time is yours. And and then I'll pat you on the butt, take your money and book you back in again and we'll try and win that championship together. So um, that's the project, really. Well, anybody that's been listening for this last hour and, and had the, the pleasure of had, listening to all this knows that the successes you're having now and the one, all the ones you've had over the last 20 years are certainly not by accident. This is, this is every bit earned by the, the way you go about your business and, and your character and, and knowledge and, and soul of the way you go about it. So I can't thank you enough for, for being with us, Greg. And uh, much like Mike, as much as I don't want this to end, I can't wait to go back and, and listen to it when we do the edits. So um, thank you very much for your time, everybody. Thank you for listening. This has been episode 15 of the Principles of Performance podcast thank you for listening to the principles of performance podcast if you've enjoyed our content please like and share on your social media outlets as well as subscribe and give us a review on youtube 
Apple Podcasts, or whatever your preferred platform is to listen to. For more information on the principles of program design courses and workshops, visit us at www.principlesofprogramdesign.com and follow us on all of the social media channels where we post new content every day. To save 10% on any PPD courses, enter the discount code PRINCIPLESPODCAST10 at checkout. If you have any questions we can answer or suggestions for the show, you can email us at info at principlesofprogramdesign.com or message us on social media. Thank you again for your support.